think like probably many projects in science, this started out of spite that uh, <laughs> for some reason, I've just always been bothered when people are like, oh, yeah, things are so different now than they used to be. And I was like, well, how do you know? Um, and so and so for me, this is essentially vanquishing in uh, in debate all the people who ever said used to be this way and now it's this way. <laughs> and now I just will email them the paper. Yeah. <laughs> That's Adam Mastriani. He's a postdoctoral scholar at Columbia Business School. And in some of his recent research, he's been looking at how much public opinion in the United States has changed over time. The first thing I did was take advantage of a bunch of work that other people did over decades. So like Pew and Gallup and the American National Election Studies, the General Social Survey, have truly been doing God's work in asking the same questions year after year. Like this, I think, is precious, precious data, because once the past is the past like we we can't go back and ask the questions anymore so he compiled a big set of data on actual public opinion on dozens of issues like climate change racism gender roles abortion smoking and for each of those issues you can plot out the changes over time in the average opinions of actual american people but that's only the beginning because what he's really interested in is not necessarily how opinions have changed but in how much everyday americans think public opinion has changed. And then we got a big nationally representative sample of people and showed them verbatim the questions that have been asked over the years. Like, for example, since 1978, polls have been asking people whether they would vote for a woman as president of the United States. And so Adam would show people this exact question and ask, what do you think was the typical opinion back in 1978? And what do you think the typical opinion was by 2010? So he can get a snapshot of how public opinion has actually changed over time when it comes to more than 50 issues and how much people think opinion has changed. And when the data were in, it was clear. People really don't know how public opinion has changed in roughly the past 50 years. And that's not just to say that people are inaccurate, meaning that, you know, their guesses are all over the place, but they're also biased. So even if you average everybody's guesses, that average uh, converges onto an answer that is the incorrect answer. So to our example, people thought that in 1978, only 32% of Americans would say they'd vote for a female president, and that by 2010, that figure would have increased to around 70%. But in reality, 74% of Americans said they'd vote for a woman in 1978, and 96% of people in 2010 said that they would. People just had no idea that this is what opinions looked like between the past and the present. And like Adam just said, some of people's guesses are just pure error, just randomly throwing darts and missing the bullseye. When it comes to people's beliefs about how much opinions have changed over time, they're off by about 22 points on a 100 point scale, which I think is quite a bit. But obviously, it's up to you whether you think that's a lot or not. But as the overall trends show, there's also something systematic about how wrong people are. On a majority of attitudes, people overestimate the amount of change. They get the direction right, but they think there's been more change than there really has. So yes, acceptance for a female presidential candidate has increased over time, but it's nothing like the story of massive change that people are imagining. And by the way, there are other issues where there actually has been a lot of change, but people don't quite realize it, like same-sex marriage. There was a monumental shift in acceptance between 1988 and 2018. 
but people underestimate how big a shift that was. And then there are issues where people got the direction of change entirely wrong. Like gun control. On average, people think that support for gun control has increased over the last 30 years. When in reality, support has been going down. And there seems to be some logic behind all of this, which is that it seems as though people's view of the world is that opinions have been getting more liberal, more open to racial and gender diversity, more supportive of gun control. But this march from a super conservative past to a more progressive present doesn't quite map the reality. And it's not that people are overshooting how progressive the country has gotten. It's that they, they don't appreciate how liberal the past already was. People have a stereotype that the past is more conservative than it actually was. And so they underestimate how liberal the past was by a lot. They underestimate how liberal the present is by a little bit. And if you put those things together, people overestimate how much of a liberal shift there's been. I think this matters a lot because these beliefs about how opinions have changed over time, I think, form part of our stories that make sense of why things are the way they are and how they could be different or how they should be different. And so, for instance, one of the attitudes that really surprised me was on these feeling thermometers, the, the question is, how warm do you feel toward black Americans? And answers to that question have not meaningfully changed since 1964. And knowing that, I think it really complicates your story of like, well, how did racism play out over the last generation in the U.S.? Uh, if, you th if you think the story was white people hated black people and now they don't anymore, that's not borne out by the data. But obviously there is some difference, right? We don't live in 1964 anymore. The material conditions are different. So why did that happen if it didn't happen by some change in antipathy? I mean, psychologists, I think, have known this for a long time, that racism isn't just antipathy, that there's, uh, there's all kinds of other bundle of attitudes in there. But I think for regular people, thinking about the story of our country, um, uh, I think that story changes when you see how these attitudes have changed over time. That's one reason why I think it matters. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and as Adam Mastriani's work shows, we are largely ignorant about how much and whether minds really change. Sometimes we think minds have changed more than they have. Sometimes we don't realize that minds have changed as much as they have. One person who was shocked to find out how public opinion has changed is our guest today, David McCraney. I saw a Pew poll where they showed the lines of support and oppose over time flip. And they it flips so fast. And I all the stuff at the same time in my mind, I was like, how could all these people change their minds about this issue so quickly? And I, I thought if the majority of the country could get into a time machine and go back just five to 10 years, and if they met themselves, they would disagree with themselves so vehemently, they would probably argue and get angry. So he decided to write a book. Since everyday people are so out of the loop on which opinions change and which ones don't, maybe a deep dive into the psychology of opinion and persuasion alongside the stories of people like former cult members who've gone through huge transformations in their beliefs can be revealing. The book is called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion, and it comes out in June. David is probably best known for his previous books, blog, and podcast, all under the name You Are Not So Smart. 
He does a really great job covering psychology and neuroscience through all of these forms of media and reaching a huge audience around the world. It's definitely worth checking out his stuff. But I was excited to meet up with David to pick his brain about how he got wrapped up in the world of social science, what prompted this new book on persuasion, and what he's learned about how minds change. The, the Dave McCraney origin story seems compelling to me uh, in that it seems like it was not like, uh, hey, I've always wanted to host a podcast about psychology. <laughs> um, so so what, it, what, like, what was the thing? Actually, j- just to back up a second, when I talked to Rich Petty, uh, who you talked to for your uh, podcast. Yeah. And I was like, hey, do you remember talking to this guy? And did, did you know he's writing this book about persuasion? And it sounds very cool. And he was like, oh, um, like I, I do remember talking to him, and my main impression was I was really surprised at how much he seemed to know about persuasion <laughs> psychology. And so, how did you get here? How good. did you get to the point where you could hold your own against people who who are sort of living oh, wow. and breathing that stuff as a career? Like, I need to go uh, take my cup of coffee and 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 look at the horizon for a minute. After that, <laughs> that's the best compliment ever. Um, I mean, I'm an autodidact dilettante, like the like like the best of the internet citizens uh, have been since the beginning. Uh, I I started out. Um, I went to school to be a psychologist. Uh, I wanted to. I was interested in therapy and stuff like that. But also, I got really into the humanist psychology domain uh, while I was going through that program. And then, um, what the real start? My real origin story is that there was a poster, like a, a just a some like printed out thing that the, the school newspaper had put up all over campus. And it just said in big, bold type opinionated with a question mark. And it said, uh, you should write for the, for the school newspaper. And I was like, I'm opinionated. I would like to do that. Um, so I had, uh, I wrote some very sophomoric cringy thing about how Starbucks had taken over the, the school's, uh, um, coffee shop it was going to, they were turning it from the school's coffee shop to a co- to a Starbucks. And I made some sort of like you know, corporations are destroying the world kind of thing, but I made it funny again. I tried to make it funny and, um, they liked it a lot. And then they said, you should write more. And I was taking these psychology classes and there was this, uh, we had just recently learned that when people, uh, and I don't know if this has been, if this has failed replication since then, but, uh, there was this study that had come out where people had, uh, when you're, when you're, when your football team loses, uh, your sperm count goes down and, our football team had lost every one of its games so far. And so I thought I could write this funny piece about how uh, it would look like almost like an onion article where I'd say, uh, according to science, the sperm counts on campus are at their all time low. And then like, I would explain in a funny way about this is based off this research paper. And in my, uh, I was taking a, my Latin professor said, have you seen this? He told the, the class, have you seen this article? And, uh, he thought it was really funny and he didn't know that I had written it. And I would get this enormous rush of dopamine, right? I was like, ah, this is super validating. And I was like, I really would like to do more stuff like that. So I was already learning so much about psychology in the way that it was busting up a lot of my pre- misconceptions about how, how we actually work, you know, not, not just the stuff that you're used to doing in a psych 101 or early psych stuff like, uh, ash and stuff like that. But it was a uh, deep, weird things that most people had never heard of. And I was just obnoxiously telling my friends, you know, you know, actually it was a lot of that in car rides. So, 
that was kind of on hold. And then I went into, I decided I wanted to write for the school newspaper and I did. And then I quickly, uh, the, the, the edit, the, the, the news editor, uh, position came open. I went for that. I became the news editor. And then at the year after that, they, the executive editor, like the person who runs the whole newspaper, that position came up and I went for that and I became the executive editor. And I really just went all, fully into journalism and I, uh, took an internship at a really small newspaper. Uh, over the summer when I was still a psych major. And when I went to go work for them, the their main reporter had just quit. And they said, you know, I know you wanted to be an intern, but would you like to just be hired as a reporter? And I was like, okay. And they said, okay, well, here's your desk. Here's a, here's a camera and uh, here's your notebook. Could you go to the city council meeting tonight? And I just immediately was working in a small newspaper and I loved it. And I just fell in love with a sort of style of journalism that they were, that they allowed for there. It was literary journalism where you uh, really try to tell a story. You try to turn the, the, you try to humanize the people in the story. It's not just facts and figures and inverted pyramid. And when I came back to school, I was like, I just want to, I want to reinvent our school newspaper to do that kind of stuff. And so that was my life for a little while. Hmm. And I graduated and I went to work for uh, a big newspaper. And then from there I went on to be a, uh, to work for a television station. And this is where the real, this is where part two really comes in at the television station. The position that was open was for someone to teach broadcast journalists how to write for the web. Cause that was a thing at the time. And so I was, I, I was sort of reteaching everything I had learned in journalism school to people who had taken a different track. And when, when roughly in time was this like when, 2000, when are... 2007, 2008. Yeah. And, um, then they were like, Hey, social media is a thing. Could you run all of our social media? Well, th that became weird because they wanted me to curate their Facebook page, which is like today that would be done in a very, that would be a totally different kind of thing. But they were like, like, you know, I was in the deep South. I was in Mississippi and like things like, uh, same sex marriage and, and, uh, and all sorts of race related issues and politics. And, uh, they were all there and people were, would get very aggressively awfully trolly on, on an early internet that nobody understood at that, that, hmm. at that institution. And so I really started to see people up, you know, up the up closeness of people arguing with one another and being uh, crazy to each other and uh, being difficult to maintain. And I even um, had like people try to, uh, I had like death threats to me personally for curating the, uh, like there was a, a discussion about um, climate change and uh, I expressed what the meteorologist working at the station had to say about it. And that led someone to come to, to hmm. the station and we had to get the police to like physically arrived at the station. Yeah. To, um, cause they, their comment had been removed and this was like early hmm. internet stuff. Right. So they came to the, and so I was just sort of in the trenches of all that. And all of this encouraged me to start a blog that went back to the psychology that I was so happy to that I, that I loved, but I wasn't doing anything like that anymore. And I also wasn't writing anymore. So I, I started a blog that combined the two things that I didn't get to do anymore, psychology and, and writing about stuff. And uh, I was watching a lot of the daily show and he kept, uh, John Stewart had this phrase that he would like to do as a punchline. He's like, uh, not so much basically. And I was like, uh, there was this whole, uh, surge of blogs about one very tiny thing at the time, stuff, mm -hmm. white people like, look at this fucking hipster shit. My dad says, these were all big, uh, awkward family photos. Uh, and I thought it would be cool to have a blog that was about one very tiny specific sliver of psychology, which would be cognitive biases. And lucky enough for me, nobody had done this yet. And so 
uh, I started, I said, it would be cool to call it. You are not so smart. And at first it was just sharing YouTube videos. The very first one was the Darren Brown, uh, person swap mm. experiment, which is, a uh, a, a sort of theatrical version of, of change blindness. Um, and, in, I was just like, for me, that was like a super illustrative, uh, thing to show people because if, if anyone has never seen this, it's, uh, somebody asks for, asks for directions on a college campus and then two people pass between them with a large object like a door or like a big painting or something. And one of the people holding the object switches places with the person who was asking for directions. So now it's a completely different human beings standing in front of you asking for directions and they measure whether or not uh, people notice and they debrief them and ask them. Uh, and in the theatrical version of it, they just sort of film it and make it make people look silly. So I, my takeaway from that was like, if you don't notice that you probably don't notice a whole lot of what's going around. You probably have a very broad, good enough, view of reality that you live off of and the changes change blindness is a is a gateway to a whole other world of psychology so that that was the idea the way it became a thing the way this became my entire life uh was i uh my i got into an argument with my friends about whether the playstation 3 or the xbox 360 was the better system and we got so angry that we got mad and we got uh we just got furious with one another and it, and it made me feel like, why would people get mad about something like that? Why would we get mad about this box of wires? And it made me wonder, I'm sure there's some psychological literature about this. So I looked up stuff about identity and, or, but this is way back. This is like 2008. Uh, and I was like, it was identity and branding. And at the time it was very popular on the internet to call it fanboyism. Uh, and it's still a thing. People still argue this way. Uh, now it could be Marvel versus DC. It could be anything, Apple versus PC, whatever it is, your Android versus iPhone. And uh, so I read an article about that. And it was I talked a lot about Apple because the ads were going around at the time, which was I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. And uh, the blog Gizmodo had just stolen the uh, iPhone prototype that was out at the time at a bar. And it was a big news story because uh, Steve Jobs wrote them an email and said, give me back my iPhone, which they had then turned into another story for the clicks. And they asked if they could republish my blog post, which was crazy. I had like 3000 people who were following this thing. I said, sure, go ahead. Because it was about a 1500 word article about why people get so angry about brand loyalty. I assume they just had like a Google alert for Apple stuff and that was there. And they tossed it into the mix. And then the next day I had like 300,000 people on the website. I was like, oh shit, I should write some more stuff. So I wrote something, <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote something about, um, learned helplessness and, uh, uh, and I, I put a bunch of new content up and it, it was enormous. The, the number of people that were reading it and sharing it, it was going everywhere. And I just made it my afternoons after work every day. It was to put out more and more content there. And mm -hmm. I started developing a, a, a a style of writing, which was down to earth, funny, translated it in a way, uh, not too much, uh, inside baseball stuff. And I found myself reading research papers all, all day, every day. And so I was basically like working on a master's degree in a weird way. I was just reading research papers about everything related to reasoning, decision-making judgment and putting out tons of content. And it was not too long after that. Um, I got a, started getting emails from book publishers who were like, uh, or agents who were like, this could be a, this could be a, there was a lot of blogs being turned into books. So all the blogs mm -hmm. I mentioned a minute ago had become mm -hmm. books and they were like, you should be in this game. And I was like, sure. And, uh, and they gave me a few months to write it and I put it out and that book became just wildly successful. It was, uh, it's like in almost 20 languages now and it's, it's, it's crazy. And it was just the right place, at the right time. And the end of this, this origin story for how we got here is I was 
they were like, the book did so well, write a second one. And my agent said, sequels to books like this don't usually do very well, but do it. And I, but you don't need to promote this one heavily. And so I thought, I don't know how to promote this except for bl- podcasts have become a cool thing. What if I started a podcast that promoted the book, the second book? And I just named it You Are Not So Smart because the title of the first book and the blog were all the same. And uh, I thought that, that what I would do is I would interview the people that had been mentioned in all these essays and blog posts and everything. And that started it. And I started the first episode was with the uh, the researchers behind uh, it was a, uh, uh, Dan Simons and, and, uh, it was the change blindness. And I was like, let's get into it. What are we talking about here? And I found that this was like everything that I had built up my journalistic stuff and my psychology stuff and understanding how the internet worked and how to publish stuff to that kind of audience all came together really well as pot in podcast form. So what I had for myself was I was reading research papers all the time. Then I was inviting the actual scientists on to get a deep dives and they would tell me, you should look at this, you should read this. Mm. And it just became a whole world where it became my beat. And so for, uh, more than 10 years now, I've just, that's all I, that's, that's my professional life is reading the science, translating the science, and then hanging out with the scientists themselves. And that's how it all happened. And, and so I continue to, 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 from this point forward, I'm like, I want to make new stuff. So you are not so smart. will continue to be a thing, but I'm doing these side projects now that are coming into their own right. Like the genius documentary in this new book that is sort of outside the domain of just hardcore. Let's talk about biases and fallacies and heuristics and that kind of thing. So to to go back to one of the, uh, two of the things that that stand out, one, I was going to say, so I've heard you mention the Darren Brown uh, aspect of the, the, or sort of entry point. Um, And he, and he blurbed, he blurbed my first book. I blurbed, I just uh, blurbed one of his recent books, which is a really wild come full circle thing, right? That's so cool. So I'm an enormous fan of him and have been for a long time. And in some ways he's also part of my psychology origin story too, which is some some of this simpatico, which is that, so I I was a magic and yeah. Oh yeah. That was like my whole thing growing up and, uh, working at magic shops and going to restaurants, doing magic there, doing shows. And I, I sort of, discovered Darren Brown's work and I was like, oh, okay, this is like very interesting. I sort of went full into that sort of offshoot of the the magical arts, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it was really sort of this like decoding, like what if this, he keeps calling this psychology, but like what, how much of it is and how much of it, that is the deception and how much of it is the story. Yeah. Um, and as a writer and as a speaker and as a performer, he's just amazing. Um, and and in some part inspired by that, several years ago, I wrote a book for mentalists about psychology to be like, <laughs> That's awesome. you got you guys keep talking about psychology like you know what you're talking about, but you <laughs> kind of don't. You're, you're kind of making it all up. So like, if you want to know, this is what it is. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And so, so yeah, so, so very, very cool to, to yeah. see that be sort of a, a, cause I also think he's been a champion of legit social science as well. Yeah. A, a lot of Darren's uh, shows that are, are actually like him, he collaborates with Wiseman on the back end, and, and then he figures out a way to theatrically present some of this stuff. And, uh, and he, same, same with me. I, I didn't, I didn't expect for so many magic and mentalist people to be in my life, but like, I just recently like spent a weekend at a Brian Brushwood's place. And he, he's become a good friend at that period of time when my stuff first came out, you know, there's, there's a skeptics movement, which has become kind of, mm-hmm. uh, has evolved since then. But a lot of the, the magic people were in there. People like, um, Penn and Teller and, uh, definitely Brian Brushwood and his crew and, uh, Matt Dillahunty also like mm-hmm. all, a lot of them are in Texas of all things. And then mm-hmm. since I'm not too far from Texas, I've been able to go out there and, mm-hmm. uh, they're 
deep into all this. They're, they're huge consumers of the kind of content we make. Um, and then they also are always like thinking like, how can they create better, uh, shows? And then I think there's been an interesting merging of that over time. So mm-hmm. uh, plus there's a magicians love con artists and, you know, con artists are a really great way to explore, uh, mm-hmm. how we do and do not make sense of things and how easy it is to trick people by letting them trick themselves, by letting people assume they understand what's happening in front of them and they go with that narrative and not interrupting it. So I feel you, man. That's awesome. I love that you did that. And and in uh, part of like how I got interested in the kind of psychology I do was sort of that skeptic psychic uh, car- crossover, which is like, yeah, yeah. how are people forming confidently held beliefs about like the the facts of the world based on stuff that everybody else can see is is just a, a phony show, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that's sort of why I was interested in like belief confidence and certainty <laughs> and those sorts of things. So anyhow, so so uh, I, I just wanted to <laughs> mention that. No, that's that awesome. Sort of, I love all this. This is my favorite stuff. And uh, I remember Penn and Teller's bullshit was was a mm. really was 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 a, was out around the same time I was starting. Mm-hmm. You were not so smart. So there was something in the air. Uh, there was that wave, and then predictably irrational came out. Mm-hmm. Thinking fast and slow came out. Uh, that was good for me too. Thinking fast and slow was like the hmm yes. I, but you know, people read the first three chapters and not the rest. And then like mine was the coffee table book. You would get along with that. Right. That you would. Act, <laughs> it, it, so it was really helpful for me. And but I'd always wanted to like I want to be able to write books like that. I want to get up in there. And uh, so it's been it's been great to sort of i was just in the right place at the right time several times a lot of luck um well that moment in in you know 2008 2009 felt like a blogging heyday to me i mean i I remember i was had my little google reader set up that i'd I'd open up every every morning and (laughs) i missed that so much blogs yeah medium is 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 you know everything's been turned into a shopping mall but the medium is a close second to all of that and but i feel i feel you completely i agree i i i was there when pot when blogs just hit and caught that bubble before it burst. And then I was there when podcasting just hit. And I don't feel like this bubble is, 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 it's not about to burst, but it is about to be corporatized hard. Uh, there's lots of companies who are making the, making the independent producer has to make a choice here and feel how are you going to compete with Pushkin and, and, uh, and, uh, Gimlet and how are you going to compete with Joe Rogan and that kind of thing. So I just keep making my things. Uh, I am a big believer in just like, I make the show, that I want to listen to. And I make the show that if I start getting on it, like I've got, I've become really re- recently very fascinated with like math. I didn't necessarily struggle with math, but I certainly didn't enjoy it. Uh, and I realized it's a huge level area of ignorance for me. And so I've just been inviting mathematicians on the show to explore that. It's been great. Uh, it's, it's a, a show that started out only about biases. Now we're exploring like, what can we understand about the how minds make sense of anything by understanding how we how did we discover this and create this language and what does it do for us and all that? So it's been great. I I, I can I can I will always have you are not so smart as as the centerpiece as as sort of the the galactic core of all the other stuff that's going to orbit it from now on. I think I think I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have a book coming out. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> um, pretty soon. And it's called How Minds Change. And my first hard-hitting question for you about this book is, why call it How Minds Change and not How to Change Minds? Because it seems like that is a very subtle difference that really changes the scope of what that book is about and how you'd approach it. So I'm so, so happy you're asking that question. So why, yeah, why How um, Minds Change? The There's a short answer. And then as I want to do a very long yeah. one. Um, <laughs> so the short answer is I started the book wanting to understand how minds change, not how to change minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because I, like I said earlier, I had been so involved in 
curating social media for a, a big media company. And then also I lived in the deep South and I saw the reactions around me to a lot of issues that were changing in the world. And one of those things was same sex marriage. And, um, my very first job before any of this as a, as a, as a teenager was, uh, delivering flowers for my uncle who is a, a gay man who was very closeted at the time. And he had to be because he lived in a, a very small Southern town and his, uh, being out was dangerous and his landlord actually uh, bullied him over the fact that he was gay. And uh, my father defended him in a very, uh, let's say rough housing kind of way. And I saw that as a young man and I had LGBT friends and I had a lot of people in my life who were being affected by that issue in the deep South, where at this period of time, if you lived in say New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that, you were much farther along the arc of, of social change than I was in. But I was a person who lived on the internet and I was seeing both worlds simultaneously. So this was just something that had fascinated me. And when I first started in 2015, 2014, there was all this talk about, um, there's all this arguing online about same-sex marriage. And I saw a Pew poll where they showed the lines of uh, support and oppose, you know, over time flip. And they, it flips so fast. And I, all of this stuff at the same time in my mind, I was like, how could all these people change their minds about this issue so quickly? And I had this strange like thought experiment that come into my mind about the, uh, it was 68% of America was opposed. And then 68% of America was in favor. And that happened over the course of 12 years, but most of it happened over the course of two years. Mm -hmm. And I was, I just like, what do you mean? Like these people were <laughs> so adamantly arguing against this. And now they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I was wrong about that. And then I thought if they all got into a time machine, like the majority of the country could get into a time machine and go back just five to 10 years. And if they met themselves, they would disagree with themselves so vehemently, they would probably argue and get angry. And I realized I had never seen anything in the scientific literature, even though I'd been talking about all this for ages, about what happens in the, in the brain and then by extension, what happens in the mind when somebody changes their beliefs or attitudes. And I just wanted to know everything there was about that. And I envisioned a book that would just talk about social change in that regard. Uh, because when I looked into the, I asked some political scientists about the same sex marriage thing. And they said that, yeah, that's the fastest recorded change uh, mm. for a social issue, uh, public opinion. But um, there are, most of them are like that. Um, they said that like when it came to support for Vietnam or for uh, cigarettes or uh, suffrage or civil rights or uh, a million other issues, usually what happens is there's a status quo and then poof, it flips like very quickly in about 12 years. And it took the same shape as punctuated equilibrium in, in evolution. Long periods of, of stability punctuated by extreme and quick changes. And the same thing was happening was that the environment changes so much that people have to adapt psychologically to the changes in the environment. And then I'm like, oh, God, well, what changes that? And how does this work? And it seemed like this infinitely nested thing. And I was like, that should be a cool book. But then as I started writing the book, the Internet started to uh, mature. And we had everything from Donald Trump to Brexit to post-truth entering the, the, the dictionary the cover of Time Magazine saying, is truth dead? And when I would tell people about this book idea I had and that I was working on it, they would often ask, like, 
well, surely some of those people that you're talking about had somebody changed their minds. What did that? Like mm -hmm. what? And so I realized that people in the public were also interested in persuasion and persuasion can come from anything. It can come from experience. It can come from activism it can come from propaganda and, and marketing and PR and advertising, or it can come from just interpersonal communication, deliberation, argumentation. And that's my overarching idea was that of like explaining psychologically and neurologically how brains update and change and admit their wrongness, however you define the word wrong. I, I felt there was also a strong component of like explaining um, how you would encourage that change, why people resist it so much when we argue with them. And what really led to that being a bigger idea within the book is that right as I was getting started, this article came across the wires from the New York Times about this group of people in, in Los Angeles called the, the LGBT Center of Los Angeles had this uh, group called the Leadership Lab. Lab stands for Learn, Act, Build. And they had developed this interpersonal persuasion technique, this, this, this conversational model, where they would go knocking on people's doors. And in about 20 minutes or so, on average, they could flip somebody's opinion about something, about, a really, about wedge issues. And, uh, but what I remember most was that the articles that were being written about this were like, it turns out you really can change people's minds. <laughs> there was, there was surprise, right? There was this like shock in the, hmm. uh, in the public sphere. Wait, you can change people's minds. I thought people were unchangeable, unmovable, that it was ridiculous to even hmm. attempt it. And so I was like, first thing I need to do is fly out there and, and talk to these people. So that was how it's, I went out there and I spent all this time learning their techniques and watching them do it. And it started to become clear to me that to understand how minds change, one of the great ways to do it is actually watch people change their minds hmm. and then take that back to scientists and say, what did I see here? Hmm. And that became the, hmm. the sort of the framework of the book, which is odd. Believe me, it's been difficult to, to thread that needle for the reader because I want to talk about how minds change. You want to talk about how to change minds. And I'm like, well, first, you have to understand how minds change before we can even get into it. But I hear you. We'll do both. And that's sort of how the tone of the book. Yeah, and you take a very expansive, more expansive than I maybe expected. Uh, so I had just finished reading the chapter that sort of weaves epistemology and like, <laughs> what is knowledge? You go, whoa, whoa, are we starting there? What is knowledge? But you have to, right? If we're going to figure out like the grand picture of how this stuff unfolds, those are the kind of fundamental questions that are at the heart of it. So w was this, you know, <laughs> I always pose this question and I always know it's not it's, it's so straw many, right? Like, was it a linear progression from my idea, I learned this, I learned that, I wrote a book, versus what was the path that it took to sort of figure out like, oh, this is what persuasion looks like on the ground, but here are the questions I have to ask. Oh, but those questions raise these new questions. Can you kind of chart out like oh, what, yeah. what the form of the book, how it changed from that first idea to oh, what it is Oh my God, now? it changed so much. Like, um, I mean, this is nothing like the book that, that I started out. Uh, there's an old poem I remember about. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but the the poet says I start. Uh, they wanted to write a poem about oranges, and they in, ended up writing a poem about uh, like revolution and war and <laughs> and and uh, and disease and uh -huh. losing your parents. And then at the end of it, they're like uh, they, they didn't even mention oranges, but they titled the poem "Oranges," and I thought hmm. that was really nice. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, no, it was not linear. Uh, there are there are moments within the, and I put them in the book, uh, where there are some linear progression moments, but no, I was going forward and backwards because what I didn't know was I didn't know what I didn't know. Like I didn't realize how wrong I was about this topic. And there were a few things that stuck out in that regard. One was I was doing that thing when I would argue with people about what I thought were fact-based issues. 
I thought that I was arguing the facts. But really what I, what I was missing was that we were talking about this person's attitude toward this issue. And I was, and I realized, when I went back and read all the research into the early days of persuasion research, back all the way to the uh, uh, World War II anti-propaganda stuff with... Hovland? Um, um, yeah, yeah, Hovland and, and, and the Yale Attitude Change Project. Like, that's what, I was like, holy shit, they also did the same thing. Like, like in the early days of... of, of of this of research into persuasion, they believed everything was about learning. It was the, it was the information deficit model. And they thought that, you know, you just teach people the facts and they'll change their minds because they'll naturally come to the same conclusions I have come to after looking at this stuff, because they are compelled by the same things I'm compelled by and their reasoning will match mine. And naturally so they'll see the same things I see. Um, and words like belief and attitude and value and opinion uh, were used interchangeably as if they were talking about the same mental construct. And I found that in the lay public and in myself, I was doing the same thing. Like if I was trying to, to convince someone that a certain politician was not a good person, I thought that I was arguing the facts of the matter. But really, I'm arguing I feel this way about this person and I'm cherry picking, cherry picking the facts to support my argument. That, and then my argument is built off the fact that I feel very strongly about this mm. and I can go deeper than that. This, and I feel very strongly about this because of my identity and my blah, 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 blah and all that, my values. Um, that was behind the veil of ignorance for me in the beginning. And I had to discover all those things for myself and then move through the science of it. Another big thing was uh, in the beginning, I thought I would just go to scientists first. Like I remember talking to uh, one researcher who um, I was like, uh, he said he's been, he studies belief. And I was like, tell me, um, so tell me what's, could you define belief for me? Pretend I'm five years old and as old journalistic trick, pretend I'm five years old and explain what a belief is to me. And, um, he said, uh, oh, whew, that's a big question. And I was like, what you, <laughs> you've been, how long have you been studying this? He's like, about 40 years. Like, and you can't define the thing you study? He's like, mm. that's why I can't define it. Because it's, it's way more complicated than that. Mm. And uh, that's what led me to think, well, the better way to write the book is to go out and, and see things in person and then bring what I've seen back to scientists and say, what are you looking at here? So that was one element that went back and forth. Another big element that went back and forth was I when I did meet people who were doing, um, who were activists in different regards, I would notice that the ones who did A-B testing over the course of years would settle on a sort of a step one, step two, step three type presentation. Hmm. And their steps were the same, but hmm. they had never met each other. Hmm. Um, they had not studied the science behind it. And they, their steps were very similar to things like motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy. And then deeper than that, they were very similar to some of the ideas in elaboration likelihood and so on. And I was like, oh, all of these people are seeing the same patterns and adapting to the patterns in much the same way that um, if you're going to try to build the very first airplane, no matter where you are on Earth, it's going to kind of look the same because physics is the same everywhere on Earth. Or if you're trying to build the first buildings, often cultures tend to build pyramid-like structures at first because that's a thing that you can build very big and won't fall over. It's not that aliens came and told them how to build things. It's that that's how you build things when you don't know how to build things yet. <laughs> and I, I started seeing these persuasive techniques were similar in that regard because this brains work as the same way. Then I was like, well, why would that be? And that's how what led me into people like Mercier and Sperber who, who have this grand theory of uh, interactionism or intera the interactionist model of uh, uh, how argumentation evolved in the human brain to, to deal with group level reasoning and group level problem solving. And then when I was spending time with conspiracy theorists and cult, former cult members and things, I, I was seeing patterns there about identity. And uh, that led me to the research uh, 
where uh, you put people in MRI and challenge their identity and you get a really different response than if you're just telling them something they didn't know about the, uh, you know, the Great Wall of China or something. So all these things were happening parallel and there wasn't a linear path through it. To me, it was just so much stuff. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um, th- I couldn't find a, a, a starting point and the book went all over the place until I went to NYU I had, I, I had uh, something came along the wires, which was there were people who had, had figured out why people saw the dress differently. And then I had that, as we were talking about earlier, I was like, this is a really, really common thing that we all got to experience, which is really, to me, illustrative of what I'm really trying to get at here. The dress which being is this, this photo. Of the a... dress, yeah. the dress, <laughs> the, the, if you, I'm sure people remember this. I haven't met anyone who doesn't remember right. this. It's so <laughs> universal. It's like a, it's global. It's like species wide. We all experience this thing. So dress that some people see as black and blue and some people see as yellow and white or gold and white. And if you see it that way, you don't see it the other way. And if you had, if you never talked to another human being, you would not know that you could see it another way. But when you do meet someone who sees it the other way, you go, excuse me, you're, are, how are you, what's wrong with you? And then they're like, no, what's wrong with you? And now you're having that kind of argument that I feel like we often have where we're seeing two different inter our brains are constructing two different realities from the exact same inputs. And I wanted to understand that. And sure enough, when I went to NYU and spoke to the researchers who studied that Michael Karlovich and um, Pascal Wallach, they had developed a model out of that called SurfPad, and uh, uh, substantial uh, in moments of um, when you when you or when you <laughs> when you encounter novel information that is ambiguous, the brain will disambiguate that information based off your prior experiences, uh, both sensory modalities and beyond. Basically saying uh, your experiences in a moment of ambiguity leads may lead to a different conclusion than me than that will for me. And when we meet each other, we will disagree. And then that paired perfectly with the work of Mercy and Sperber saying, what do we do in moments of disagreement? There is an actual sort of um, evolved response to disagreement in which we can properly sort out how we're going to build a worldview based off the fact that you have a different perspective than I do. And we have nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. Like I, I feel this way. You feel this way. I can't, I'm not, I'm, it's happening to me. And then the work of, uh, of, uh, uh, Robert Burton into certainty felt like very similar to that because like certainty is something that happens to you. It's sort of an emotional state, uh, or, a, or a sub emotional state where certainty is not something you can control either. I do, or I feel the certainty I feel happens to me more than it. I'm not, I'm not actively choosing to be certain. And it all came together. I felt like that was this, there was an arc there. And this is, was a pipeline to getting to how we do and do not change our minds. And then I could finally get into something that, that is sort of a grand overarching concept, which is assimilation and accommodation, which is how we stepwise update our priors. And that became like, I, feel, I felt like if I could explain that in the, in the, in the first half, then you will understand why a persuasive technique works the way it does because it has to play well with all of these psychological mechanisms that unfold when we're trying to make sense of things around us and build a more robust model of reality and update that model of reality in cases where you feel like we might be wrong, which would be like, uh, and wrong can be factually incorrect, perhaps morally or ethically incorrect, perhaps our attitude should be adjusted, or perhaps we can't help but not like chocolate ice cream but if somebody else does like chocolate ice cream we won't feel compelled to say you're wrong we can actually have cognitive mm. empathy for the fact that well maybe maybe my brain works differently than you do or my experiences led me to be this way so that's how it all came together it was not linear build, building this book was 
all over the place. But it took so long mm-hmm. and it took so long because I didn't want to start with my I, I wanted I didn't want to do the thing of I have a catchphrase or I have a uh, a folk psychology viewpoint or I have a hypothesis and I'm going to defend it. I, I wanted to actually try to understand it for myself and then translate that over to you. Oddly enough, it sounds like you were on your own assimilation accommodation journey in writing the book, right? Like For sure. For sure. Because by the end of it, I'd really changed my mind about all of it. Um, the The book ends, I, I didn't send this over to you, but uh, uh, the book ends with, after having learned all this and then learning a bunch of different persuasive techniques, there was this, uh, I got a chance to um, go to this sort of unconference thing at, at a, at a uh, getaway in the far reaches of frozen Canada. And it was a group of, um, of people who all had, it was 40 people and all 40 people had to give a 10 minute presentation and we all had to give our presentations back to back. And it was a sort of a stunt fun event thing. Really cool. Most of the people there were in tech. Uh, most people there were in, um, Silicon Valley type stuff. And I presented what I knew at the time. I talked sort of a little about the Bruner experiment with the playing cards. I talked a little bit about assimilation accommodation, a little bit about the effective tipping point, all things that are, uh, in the, the first half of the book. And I had just come back from Sweden where I had, uh, spoken to Mark Sargent. He's a, he's a spokesperson for flat earth. And, um, the organizers of this conference, they had me come on stage and sort of like, um, a fr- in a friendly way, challenge his, his beliefs on that matter. And I felt good about that conversation, even though I think I didn't do a, I didn't do the, a jo- as good a job as I would do today, but I felt pretty good about the fact that he had, by the end of our conversation said he was, he could be wrong about it. And, and, um, and then, you know, we became real friendly afterward and I felt there was something nice in that at that conference though, afterward, just as people were like, show us the technique, show us these techniques, show us the persuasion technique. And so we had this lunch or this dinner, we had this dinner and it's in like a log cabin type thing. And, um, there were, everybody was there. And this one person, uh, his name is Jathan. He wanted be, he's like, I'll, I'll do the technique with you. I'll be the person on the other side. And I said, well, you know, let's pick something that you feel very strongly about, something that sort of guides your behavior, your, your, your actions, your life, and we'll investigate whether or not what you believe in this regard is, is, is the truth of it or it's strong, it's how strongly held it is. You could possibly change your mind about it. And he said, yeah, I believe in God. Let's talk about that. I'm like, oh, man, that's the, that's the only, that's the one thing I don't want to do. That's so, um, because, you know, this combines everything. Mm-hmm. When someone says they believe in God, are they talking about a fact-based belief? Are they talking about an attitude? Are they talking about a value? Are they talking about a norm? Are they talking about their identity? Are they talking about their motivations? I mean, when you're asking, what do you mean when somebody changes their mind? What is it that is changing when you say before and after? Uh, in this case, it's a it's a confluence of all these concepts. And so it's difficult to like just sit down and try to persuade somebody because I don't know exactly what it is I'm working on. But I felt like they, everybody wanted to do this, and so we did, uh, sat down to do it. And I started out asking him on a scale from one to 10, like how, or actually I did a scale from zero to 100. Like how strongly do you believe this? And he said he was a 70, sometimes some days higher, some days lower. And then as I had been taught, I said, uh, well, why is it not, was it ever, was it ever not 70? And he said, yeah, it used to be zero. And I said, well, what brought it up to 70? And then he told me this incredible story about how he went to the Holy Land to destroy, to become an atheist. He wanted to go there to destroy his beliefs uh, that he'd been raised with. And in so doing, he ended up embroiled in all sorts of weird stuff, uh, like mercenary groups and all sorts of things. That, and he got he went to a lot, had a lot of adventures, and he ended up um, going to the Holy Sepulchre, and, um, and the people there, like there were a lot of sort of um, 
con artisty type people in that environment that he felt confirmed his suspicions and he felt like he had done a pretty good job and he was going to leave having eradicated his um, the holy beliefs of his that he had inherited from his family but then there was an alcove outside this uh this holy building and he heard someone uh, weeping and crying from the alcove and he walked over to see what's going on it was a young woman who was lying in her vomit and filth and blood and um he would later learn he had swallowed a, a, a lot of pills to kill herself and she had a suicide note and uh he i would later he later showed me the suicide note which is covered in it's covered in blood uh he he had a very rough understanding of the language but he's he scooped her up and he ran through cobblestone streets uh, as the sun was just uh descending over the horizon and just panicked he had no idea what to do and he hailed a taxi and he took her to a hospital and they uh, they pumped her stomach and they saved her life and he eventually learned that she had uh he was a her parents wouldn't allow her to marry somebody who was uh, in, a, in an opposing religion to hers. And uh, she would have died if he hadn't done that. And the information from her parents were, were on a, like a little book she had with her and he got them to come. And he eventually uh, had dinner with them at their house. And she went on to become a nurse and get married and has children. And he still has contact with her. And he tells me all this story. He's like, I went there to destroy my faith but I found a new faith in so doing this because whether or not there's God exists, whether or not there is a entity beyond, you know, a supernatural entity, whatever it represents was represented by that moment. And for me, I discovered what I personally believe is God in this. And when he told me that, I, I just, I was like, I know, I knew like there's five more steps and that I, I can clearly, and anyone listening to this knows all sorts of ways we could like, like pick that apart. And I felt there was zero value in that because he had given me something in that story that I, that it was more powerful than anything I could ever try to take away. Hmm. Um, and I could interpret that story in ways that are really valuable to me, uh, whether or not I in, invoke anything supernatural. And so I told him, I feel pretty confident that I could take you down from 70% with a couple more questions, but let me phrase it to you like this. If I were to put a button under glass in front of you right now and you could open up the glass and press the button, you'd go from 70 back down to zero. Would you press the button? And he, he, he took a very long pause. It was a very pregnant pause. And everyone was, by the way, there's a whole, there's a whole group of people in an intimate surrounding watching us. And they, were, they, they had really leaned in for this moment. And you could just feel the, the pressure of this decision he was about to make. And he looked up very soberly and, and looked me in the eyes and said, no. And I just closed up all my materials and said, then I think the conversation is done. Um, and he stood up and hugged me and I hugged him and I, I could feel the tears in me right now. Like I, we wept and then the crowd collapsed around us and also wept. And it was, I felt at that point in the journey of writing the book that this was the point of the book, uh, that given, uh, the, there was a question that I should be asking myself, but also anyone I would hand this book to, they should be asking this question first. If you want to change someone's mind, why? <laughs> and and it, I hadn't. And in that situation, I had I was sort of thrust into doing something I didn't want to do. But I was forced at the end to ask myself, why would I keep doing this? And I find I uh, brought that to a negotiation expert. This a friend of mine, Misha Gloverman, and he said, Yeah, that should be the first question every time. Like, why are you doing this? 
why do you want to change that person's mind? And because inside of that will be another why and another why and another why. And they, they're, they, you'll get down to quirks and muons eventually if you keep asking it. But he's like, you should do that. Because you, if you're not asking why, then you are sort of assuming that you should change that person's mind because you're right and they're wrong. And it made me think about the dress because with the dress, the truth of the dress is that it's not black or, or in, um, brown and it's not white or gold. It's neither and both because what's it's a it's a subjective reality being constructed by your previous experiences with light it's overexposed and the brain when it sees something overexposed will do as they say in neuroscience subtract the luminant and when it subtracts the luminant you get a downstream subjective experience of the color and if you've spent more time in sunlight you will subtract blue as the luminant and if you spent more time indoors you also track yellow as the luminant and the result is one of these two things so if I got into an argument with you about the dress, trying to convince you that it's the way I see it, and you're trying to convince me it's the way you see it, if either one of us wins, we both lose because neither one of us will get to the deeper truth of the neuroscience as to why we're seeing it differently in the first place. And it felt like this was happening all across the conversations that I feel like people are frustrated with when it comes to, and why they would want to buy a book like this. Because if I'm out to prove that I'm right and you're wrong in this conversation, then we will both lose out on solving the greater mystery of why are we disagreeing mm. and what is it in the, in the mind that leads to disagreement? And is there a deeper truth that we're losing out on because we're so connected to whatever motivation it is to, to show that my interpretation is the only interpretation. And it came out of that, that, that became a sort of a step zero. Why am I doing this? And I deeply changed my mind about all this as a person who's as a science communicator. I, I don't, I, I do believe the earth is round. I do believe we landed on the moon. I do think vaccines are a great invention and are, and are, and are safe. These things are important to me. And the truth is important to me in that regard, but I don't think I'm always in pursuit of the truth when I'm arguing with people about those issues. If I was going to be honest with myself, uh, I'm out for something else. And oftentimes when I am, a traitor to science as an institution, that's when it happens is when I am arguing for something for reasons beyond the evidence, beyond the scientific practice. And I think oftentimes when we get into certain discussions, especially about values and attitudes and political issues, we will lean on the facts of the matter as that's why I'm arguing with you. And that, and I don't think it, I oftentimes I think that is not. And uh, that will, prevent us from reaching the deeper truth or the deeper way of collaborating and deliberating so that we can pursue a better future for humanity and get off this planet and explore the stars. <laughs> well, that, that is a, a wonderful and inspirational way to, to wrap up. So David, thank you so much for <laughs> taking the time to, to share your work in, in the new book and, and I'll look forward to seeing it come out. Thank you so much for the opportunity, man. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to David McCraney for taking the time to be here. The book, again, is How Minds Change, and it comes out on June 21st. But you can pre-order it right now. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Uh, also, be sure to check out David's other work, including his great podcast, You Are Not So Smart. Also, big thanks to Adam Mastriani, who did the research comparing actual changes in public opinion to people's perceptions. Um, that research just came out, like like a few days before I'm recording this. <laughs> so kudos to Adam for hopping on a call right away to talk to me. Um, I'm going to link to that paper and Adam's website in the show notes. He also has a fascinating blog called Experimental History that you should also check out. 
Also, do all the things that I always ask you to do. <laughs> Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, follow at OpinionSciPod on Facebook and Twitter. Visit OpinionSciencePodcast.com for all past episodes, including transcripts and other fun links. Um, and I, I don't know, Google Opinion Science. <laughs> see what comes up. That's going to do it for this week. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And I will see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye.